0: Being with us. It's a joy to have you with us this morning. We miss you being here, but we understand that you are with us at the throne of grace, wherever you might be, as we study the Word of God together. And we've been reminded in recent days, weeks, months of just the necessity of staying true to the gospel. Compromise is all around us. And so, what are we to do then as a people of God? Well, we just stand firm on the gospel. We stand firm on the gospel by continually reminding ourselves what the gospel is. Because the glorious gospel is all of God. So I begin with a question this morning. Is there still a need for Reformation Sunday? Is there still a need for us to study church history and learn from saints that have walked before us? Or is the Reformation over, as some theologians a few years ago declared? These are some of the questions that come up as we talk about Why do we look at church history in light of the scriptures, and why do we study and and look what God has done through those that have walked before us? After all, today, we have more Bibles available and more languages than ever before. We have more resources on theology that are available than ever before, radio stations and TV stations and podcasts and vlogcasts and all kind of things that people can put out there. So the church must be doing okay, Right? Well, ask yourself the question. Is the church in Jesus Christ doing better today? Is it stronger today? Is it more vibrant today? Are those who claim the name of Jesus Christ living out the gospel in a way that is markedly different from those around them? Are they living out the kingdom of God values in their daily lives? Sadly, if we're to look at the statistics and what Christians actually do and how they actually respond to questions of theology we would have to say the answer is no there are many christians who in fact are not living out the kingdom of god values whether the issue is money how to understand money how to use it how to budget it how to live for it or how to live from it what are the priorities in life what do we spend our time and talent and treasure investing in how much media do we consume or how do we understand the family or statistics on marriage and divorce? The fact remains that there's very little difference in the way many professing Christians live from those who make no pretense of being Christians at all. With a constant barrage of information that comes at us and all of these different competing philosophies and worldviews that come at us through the airwaves or those ads that pop up on an internet article, they compete for our attention. How many of us, if lined up against the wall with weapons pointed at us, could really articulate what a biblical worldview is? How much of us would say that we live according to a biblical worldview? A recent survey of theological beliefs by Ligonier Ministries out of Orlando, Florida, was entitled The State of Theology. They do this every couple of years. They try to put their finger on the pulse of what's happening in the the American church, what's happening in American culture. And the results that have just come out just a few weeks ago give reason for concern and a great need for the emphases that come with the Reformation, the five solos, the sufficiency of Scripture, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the reality of eternal life or eternal death. I just want to cite a few examples from this survey there were 35 questions I'm not our statements I'm not going to cite all of them but I put in my filter those who claim to be evangelical there were about 3,600 people that were surveyed there were about a thousand that professed to be evangelicals and I'm just going to give their response to these statements statement number three God accepts the worship of all religions including Christianity Judaism and Islam 58% of self-confessing evangelicals agree with that statement, 40% strongly so. Statement four, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. 48% of self-confessing evangelicals agree with that statement, 31% strongly so. Statement six, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 61% of evangelicals agree, 48% strongly so. Statement 9 The Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. 55% agree, 34% strongly so. Statement 12 Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 55% agree, 22% strongly so. Statement 15 Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Sixty-six percent of evangelicals agree with that statement. Fifty-two percent strongly so. My friends, these statements are nothing less than a complete surrender of biblical truth. Do we have need for the Reformation today? Yes, we have need for the Reformation today. Of the 35 statements in this survey, yes, there are some encouraging news. There's some encouraging signs. But the overall picture shows a church that is religious but not biblical, experiential but not grounded in the truth, self-absorbed and focused on the here and now instead of on God and thinking of the things of eternity. The majority of Americans, according to whatever definition you might use, but let's just use this one, do you consider yourself born again? The majority of American adults say yes. Our culture would not be in the treacherous situation that it is in if the majority of American culture was truly born again. If those who confess to be evangelicals actually lived out the truths and beliefs of biblical evangelical faith, our culture would be radically different than it is today. There is a need for Reformation in our lives and in our churches. I believe this is the fifth time that we've had the privilege of celebrating Reformation Sunday since I've come here. And in the past, we have focused on major figures of the Reformation. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, John Knox the heroes of the faith, and we do well to learn from them. But today, I thought, I want to demonstrate the truths of the Reformation from the Scriptures themselves. After all, we start with sola scriptura, Scripture alone. That ultimately, Scripture is our abiding and founding authority for all that we have in the Christian life. And so, we're going to look at one passage that has several of these solas side by side. Show that as the word of God was given under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, to the apostles and to the prophets, it contains and explains these five principles of the Reformation. So I hope you'll have your Bibles open this morning. I hope you have your mind engaged. I hope you'll be ready to be stimulated as we look at what the word of God says as we study one passage this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And if you're able, I invite you to stand as we read God's word this morning. And the inspired and truthful and authoritative word of God says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As God has given us his word for its intended purpose, may we receive it this morning as he teaches us through his Holy Spirit and for his glory. Let us be seated. Just a brief summary of what's going on in the book of Ephesians. It is really Paul's theology of the church. So for three chapters, he's teaching about all of these great blessings that we have in Christ. He starts by saying, in Christ, we have all these spiritual blessings. And then for three chapters, he will say, as a result of these blessings, this is how we are to live it out in Christian faith among the community of believers. And so if we had been... Dropped right into the middle of a series on Ephesians, and we arrived at this point, we would have seen some of the blessings that are ours in Christ, such as the fact that God chose us in Christ unto election and eternal salvation, our predestination to be adopted as the children of God, our redemption from bondage to slavery to sin, the forgiveness of our sins, the promise of a rich eternal inheritance, the sealing of God the Holy Spirit who guarantees our eternal life. Then we would have seen at the end of chapter 1 that Paul tells the church at Ephesus how he is praying for them. He writes out his prayer, as it were, and he says, this is how I'm praying for you, that they would be be able to understand, that their minds would be open, that they would understand who they have in Christ, what they have in Christ, and who they are in him. And so by the time we get to chapter 2, we see that there are many reasons for us to be grateful, grateful for what God has done for us in Christ. And They remind us then to be grateful for the Reformation, this work of God, the Holy Spirit that brought the church back to the gospel. Back to its knees before Christ, before a holy God, before an unchanging holy word. And so as you follow along in your sermon outline this morning, we get to our first major point, which is hopeless and helpless, dead in sin. Text begins, and you were dead, and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Why is it Paul would ask that we should be so grateful for what God has done for us in Christ. Why does he take a whole chapter to spell out the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ? Because we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were spiritually dead. In the words of verse 12 of chapter 2, we had no hope and were without God in the world. And so he asked this question, well, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? And there are two views that are commonly given today. One that goes back to the beginning of the church and kind of contesting a little bit the ongoing authority of the scriptures. And we'll say a little bit more based on human understanding. Another that seems to flow directly from the ongoing revelation of the prophets and the apostles throughout church history. The first one I'll refer to as the Prince's Bride view. Inigo Montoya seeks to revenge the murder of his father with the help of Westley. A farm boy turned pi- pirate who seeks to save his love buttercup from an evil king. And, but Wesley is captured. He's tortured and killed, or so it seems. And so his friends bring him to a wizard named Miracle Max. And an eagle Montoya is there with his giant friend Fezzik. And they come to Miracle Max in the hope that he can perform a miracle. And they say, can you hurry up? He's dead. And Miracle Max says, well, look who knows so much. It just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. And mostly dead is slightly alive. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. So there's a similar view that people have today that the non-believer is dead in sin, but somehow still has an island of righteousness within him and which he has the ability to decide for or against God. He is dead, but not so dead that he can't make a positive response towards God and his own human strength. He's still slightly alive. We might call this position, man is not spiritually dead, he's spiritually sick. A second view is represented by a commercial that was popular 20 years ago, but I happened to see it on TV about two weeks ago. I didn't realize it was still a thing. A medical emergency alert system that the homebound can wear in times of trouble. And the product was made famous by an elderly lady on the floor crying out, I've fallen and I can't get up. Now, we might say there's more humor in the first view, but the fact remains it's the second view that is far closer to what Paul means here in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says we were dead in our transgressions and sins. In our spiritual deadness, we had total inability. We were unable to please God in any way in words or actions. Paul says the flesh is unable to please God and doesn't even desire to do so. We had no one to pick us up from the depths to which we had fallen in our sin. More importantly, we did not even desire the things of God. We didn't desire the things in daily life. We didn't desire his word, and we had no capacity to respond positively to God. Well, we responded to God, but always negatively. I don't want His word. I don't want His way. I don't want to obey. I don't want to do the things that He wants me to do. We used our human will to continually decide against God because we did not want God. That's what we were in our deadness and of our sins. Paul says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world... Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Walking is this New Testament term that just means a way of life, a way of living. This is what we were living before. We were following what we wanted to follow, and it wasn't God. We followed the course of this world. Our lifestyle was one of sin. We were dead in sin because we walked according to these three main enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we walked in the course of this world. We walked in the way the world said to walk. We listened to the values of the world. We spent money like the world said to spend money. We made decisions like the world said was wise. We loved the world. We did not love God. And the sad fact is, John, the apostle, will have to write a letter later on after the revelation of Jesus Christ. After we have the, the gospel that has come, the, the apostles there, the is being planted, the New Testament is written. John has to write a letter and says, don't love the world. Because there's still a tendency that we have as Christians to love the world. Because after all, the world is what's right in front of us. That's what we see, that's what we touch, that's what we feel, that's what seems real. And so we listen to the lies of the world that say, hey, get more, get bigger, be stronger, be wealthier, be beautiful. And every store we walk into is covered with stuff about how we can be more worldly, how we can love the world more than we can love God. That's how we lived before we met Jesus Christ. As we also walked in the way of the prince of the power of the air. This is a name for the devil. We wanted what we wanted, when we wanted it, with whom we wanted it, at whatever price was required because we were following the one who is the prince of the power of the air, the devil. There is a real spiritual battle going on for the heart and soul of every person. So in chapter 1, the book of ephesians paul prays and says i pray that your eyes would be open to see how wonderful jesus is that he is higher than every authority and power and spiritual force he's greater he's higher he's more powerful and then in chapter six of that very same book he says now engage in spiritual warfare against those very same forces that christ has defeated And the only way we can walk in victory against those spiritual forces is if we are in in union with Christ, walking in obedience to Christ, in fellowship with Him, and then we do have power and victory over those things as we just walk and do what we're supposed to do and obey and love and share and cherish all the things of God. There's a real battle, but if we're in Christ, He's the victor. That means we will have the victory, and we need not ever doubt that. But we also should recognize that this reality is around us. And look at what it says is one of the main ways we know that we are following the ways of the enemy, the ways of the prince of the power of the air, is through disobedience. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In his natural state, man is rebellious against God. Man is rebellious against all spiritual authority. The world naturally rebels against God, against that which is righteous and holy. People want to do what they want to do. It seems natural to them. Before we came to Christ, we did what we wanted to do because it was natural to us. It seemed right. That was just what people did. Because not only did we walk in the course of this world, not only follow the prince of the power of the air, we walked according to the passions of our flesh. We were carried out the desires of the body, the text says, and of the mind, controlled by the sinful passions and appetites that percolate up from us, pleasure and pride and sacrifice and power struggles and sensuality and just general moral silliness that are all manifestations of the desires of the flesh. Oh, and if we're honest this morning, and I hope we are, we know what those struggles are, and we know the attractions of those sins because they're pleasurable, and we fall into them at times, and we lived according to them before we came to Christ, and people will destroy their lives in the pursuit of pleasure. See, in order for us to understand the good news of the Reformation, the good news of the gospel, we have to start with the really bad news. We were dead. We were on the path to destruction. And so Paul gives the logical conclusion to what he's been saying so far and says, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The culture tells us, oh, you know, people are basically good, and it's only the influence of the culture that brings them down. And the answer is, where does all this cultural influence come from, except from sinners? So we are not born basically good. We are born sinners by nature. You ever wonder why you do certain things? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I think that? Why did I plan that? Why was I in that place? Because we're sinners by nature and we want what we want. We make decisions and we want what we want. Yes, we are sinners by choice. We do bad things, but we sin because it's in our nature. It's not we're sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. And that by nature. We're not inherently good. We're born with the sin and the guilt and the death of Adam. And so, so sometimes people try to justify their sinful behavior. Lying or laziness or bullying or bad language or adultery or homosexuality. And they say, well, I was just born this way. And there's a whole cottage industry out there of books and music and literature and activities. I was born this way. Well, I have some sad news for you. That's no justification before a holy God. Because we were all born by nature, children of wrath. Think about what that means. What did we deserve? The wrath, the judgment the righteousness, the punishment of God against our sin and our wickedness. We had total inability. Even worse, we had no desire for the things of God. Now, by saying that we are sinners by nature with total total inability, sometimes the phrase total depravity comes up. And we need to understand what that means and what it doesn't mean. I'm not saying that we are as evil as we can be. Total depravity does not mean we are as bad as we could be. It means that every aspect of our being has been affected by sin. Our heart, mind, soul, will, strength, emotions, attitudes have all been touched by sin. It's comprehensive. So we are not as bad as we could possibly be. God, in His common grace, gives policemen and armies and teachers and Others that will help tame and control the evil that we might be tempted to do. We have education, we have peer pressure, and we have family honor that we need to keep. And these are things that are used to keep us from being as bad as we could possibly be. But we are as bad off as we could possibly be because we have total inability to please God, we're helpless. as as Paul said, we're hopeless. We're unable to do what God is calling us to do because we don't want to. We don't want the things of God. And if we remain in that natural state, by nature, objects of God's wrath, we will be judged by God. He is just. And so we need to feel the weight of our lostness before God. We're guilty. And there's nothing we can do to change our situation unless God acts. That's why it's good news that God does act. That's why it's good news that when Paul talks about all the spiritual blessings that we have in the heavenlies, the first thing he mentions is God chose us in Christ. Because there'd be no hope otherwise if he didn't. And so we get to our second point, which is mercy manifested, made alive in Christ. Feeling the weight of, of the guilt, of the sin, of the brokenness, the fallenness, the emptiness, the folly that sin brings, we begin this next point with, I think, what are two of the sweetest words in the English language, but God. We made a mess of our things. We were totally in rebellion against God, but God. We were fleeing from God in our rebellion, but God. We didn't desire good and godly things, but God. We deserve punishment in hell, but God. But God what? But God being rich in mercy. And sometimes we get worked up about the idea of election and God, does God choose? And, and all I have to do is look at the text because everywhere it talks about it, mercy and love and compassion are right there. And so it becomes this wonderful work of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the compassion of God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. The good news of the gospel that we must cling to, that we must proclaim, is that God did something to help sinners, and he is still doing something because mercy is available. Mercy is defined as not getting what we deserve. We just saw we're by nature deserving the wrath of God, but God being rich in mercy. We deserved wrath. He responded with mercy. We deserved hell. He offers us heaven. And this mercy was animated by the great love of God and revealed in love when we were still dead in our sins. Kind of similar to something that we heard the Apostle Paul when he said to the church in Rome, but God shows his great love for us. And then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. In his mercy, in his grace, in his compassion, he loved us and drew us to him in Christ. And so these verses in Ephesians 2, they show not only human inability, but divine mercy. We were dead, but God made us alive. Let's repeat that. But God made us alive together with Christ. It was something that God did. These verses speak of the doctrine that we call regeneration. Regeneration is that secret act of God by which he imparts new spiritual life to us. A simpler way of saying it is regeneration is being born again or being born from above. Think of the encounter that Jesus has with with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And he says "You must be born again. Nicodemus says how can this be? And Jesus says you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wills and you don't see where it goes but you see its effects. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. There is nothing, my friends, even in today's biology, nothing that we did to bring about our own physical birth. And there's nothing that we can do to bring about our spiritual birth. Dead people do not bring themselves to life. Lazarus laid in the tomb for four days. Tradition said that after a person died, the spirit would separate and hover over the body for three days, looking for a way to get back into the body. But by the fourth day, the decomposition was so bad, the spirit would be disgusted and turn away, and death was seen as final. Four days after Lazarus was dead, Jesus stood outside the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he was brought back to life. In a similar way, my friends, we were dead in the tomb of our sin and rebellion. And there was nothing we could do to make ourselves alive until God called out to us. And his light shone into the darkness. And he said, come alive and rise to life. And he made us alive in Christ. The hymn writer Charles Wesley captures well this idea of regeneration. In his hymn and can it be, where he says, "Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night," Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, means a, a ray that gives light. I woke, the dungeon filled with light. He knew he was dead in his sin and in the darkness of 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 night knew he deserved the judgment of God, but the eye of God diffused a quickening ray, and he rose, he awoke, the dungeon filled with light, and then he responded, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Yes, we must believe in Christ. Yes, we must repent and believe, but we can't until God turns us so that we can turn to him. Until the light is turned on in our heart and mind and soul. And then we can see the light. And then we come to the light. And so what makes the difference? Why is it that what we didn't want before, perhaps many of us for years and months, what is, why is it that what we didn't want before that we now suddenly want? And the simple answer is God made us alive in Christ. He made us alive. And this was by grace completely a work of his grace and not at all a work of human flesh so when we're born again of the spirit of god we're given a new disposition and now we want to do the things that before we didn't want to do so what changed was our want to our want to has changed we have a new heart A new mind, a new will, a new disposition. And now we want those things that before we did not want. We desire the things before that were loathsome to us. God gave us the new birth. He took out our heart of stone. He gave us a heart of flesh. He opened our eyes that we might see. And once we did see and we saw the gravity of our sin and the greatness of a Savior, it was then and only then that we cried out, God, have mercy on me and save me. And he made us alive in Christ, by grace you have been saved. And after he made us alive in Christ, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We've been raised spiritually with Christ. We're seated with him at the right hand of the Father. This is our union with Christ, which would be a a great doctrine to study someday, but we don't have time this morning, but it's just Christ brought us to himself, united us with him. His death was our death. His uh, burial was our burial. His resurrection was our resurrection. His ascension is our ascension. And we are with him at the right hand of the Father. And what is the purpose then? of this spiritual resurrection of this new life to show how great God is in his mercy and grace to show that our salvation is entirely a divine work of God the Holy Spirit to show how kind and merciful God can be towards sinners who deserve nothing but his wrath and so others will look and say wow why is that person saved? Well, for one reason, to show how great and kind God is towards an undeserving sinner. Think of your own spiritual life. Why were you redeemed from your sin and bondage? Why were you set free from sinful thoughts and brought to spiritual life? Why do you now want what before you didn't want? So that your life might display the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. It's all about God from beginning to end. Soli Deo Gloria to the glory of God alone. I had the privilege a number of years ago speaking in a church in Pennsylvania, sharing about what our ministry was in the Arab Middle East and Afterwards, I had a chance to talk with the pastor. He talked about the beauty of grace. Why would God have grace sons? people such as us? It was for the praise of his glorious grace. But he said this, and he's, he's right on in his response. After talking about how wonderful grace is, he said, well, when I get to heaven, Jesus is going to say to me, you lucky sinner, I sure got you out of that mess, didn't I? <laughs> That's the only response that will give him glory forever. He wanted to display his glorious grace to those who did not deserve it so that others might look on and say salvation truly and only can be all of God. So we were hopeless and helpless. We were dead in our sins. Mercy was manifested. We were made alive in Christ. And thirdly, deeds displayed, saved by grace for works. So Paul is going to show then what's the outcome of this divine work of God in our lives. And so we get to these passages that we know so well, but it's helpful for us to understand them in their context. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The kindness of God and His mercy have been manifested towards us by grace. Well, if mercy is not getting what we deserve, we saw that we deserved hell, we got mercy, then grace is getting what we do not deserve. Grace is God making us alive in Christ. Grace is God choosing us for eternal life and not sending us to hell. Grace is God loving us even when we were still sinners. Grace is God saving us through Jesus Christ. And as our eyes are open to see the ugliness of our sin and the beauty of the cross, when we see our spiritual poverty, we cry out for him to save us because these riches are made available to us in Christ. And we apply and we receive and we experience the blessings of salvation through faith as we throw ourselves completely upon him for his mercy and say, please forgive me, a sinner. So Paul wants to make it clear. He says, this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And so there's discussion over then what the meaning of the word this is. What does it refer to? And some say, well, because this is in the neuter form and, you know, in different languages you have the masculine, feminine, neuter, you have different forms. We don't have this in English, so sometimes it's hard for us to grasp since this, the word this is in the neuter form and faith is feminine, that faith is not in view here. That well, somehow God does all of the things that are necessary except faith. But we misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Faith is, not, is a gift that we exercise. It is not something that we possess inherently. In fact, the, the word this being in the neuter form refers to this entire passage. All the process of salvation, everything involved in salvation is given by grace. It refers to the whole process of salvation, of God making dead people alive. And then they're able to believe. Even the faith to believe is a gift given by God so that no one can boast. Our boasting will only be in the Lord. And this salvation and this grace is not as a result of works that we cannot boast. As I've said, we do not initiate salvation and we don't receive it as a reward for our works. We can only boast in the Lord. As we give our testimonies, what God has done in our life, it should always be, this is what God has done in my life. Let me tell you about the story of how God saved me. Let me tell you how God has changed me. Let me tell you how God has prepared a great destiny for me. Harry Ironside was a great bible preacher about a century ago and he told of a prayer meeting where a man gave a stirring testimony of God's grace in his life and afterwards someone came up to him and said oh brother this was a great testimony you gave you talked a lot about God but you didn't mention your own part in salvation he thought for a moment and he said you're right I didn't I did leave that part out my part was to run away from God as fast as I could and his part was to catch me Think about this, my friends. The only thing that we bring to our own salvation is our sin and rebellion that makes it necessary. Everything else comes from God. And the reason for that is so that we would be humbled before God and boast only in the Lord and what He has done. And so as He has saved us by grace... We saw in verse 7 that he would do this that he might display his great mercy and kindness to those who are looking on. But in verse 10, we see another reason why we're saved by grace because we are his workmanship, his masterpiece. He's making us into a new creation. One body in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. A new humanity, if you will, that is showing the goodness and grace of God. And that goodness and grace of God will be manifested in the good works that happen in the lives of His children. God displays His grace in us, so by the power of that grace, we might show it to others through our good works. We are not saved by our works. We are saved to perform works. We are saved by the work of Christ. We are saved by the work of Christ that leads to salvation. And once saved, we perform works that leads to rewards. And so Paul is telling us, look, God has stuff for us to do so that others will see what he has done in our lives and is doing in our lives and will empower us and give us the ability to go out and do it. And this fits in well then, that God has had a plan from before time of what he would do in his his people. Ephesians 1.4 says that we were chosen in Christ to be saved before the foundation of the world before time the result that we would be holy and blameless. In Ephesians 2, 7, that we are saved by His grace to display His glories to a watching world. Now here in chapter 2, verse 10, it says that we would show that God is kind and holy through the practice of the good works that we perform under His power. So there's application. There's result. There are results. The new birth leads to new life, and that new life will show through the power of God. So the first... Three verses that we see here talk about how we used to live. And verse 10 says how we are to live now in the power of God. As the reformer said, grace alone saves, but the grace that saves is never alone. God does not give stillbirths. God does not give false births. He gives authentic new births in the spirit that result in transformed lives for his eternal glory. And so as we look at this message this morning, hopeless and helpless, We were not just simply mostly dead. We were dead and unable to respond to God. And we deserved his wrath and judgment. But God. But God made us alive in Christ. He called us out of darkness into light. He called us from death unto life. He opened our hearts, opened our eyes, gave us ears to hear. And we gladly and joyfully responded to his mercy and grace. And then thirdly, We will show it to others. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. By our words and by our works, we will show that we have been saved, and it will only be boasting in the Lord. For what else can we boast in? All boasting outside of the Lord will accomplish nothing. And so, we began this service, we're going to end this service by looking at the five solas. Well, are the five solas mentioned here in this passage? I think we would see that they are. If salvation is completely by grace alone, then there's nothing that we can do to add to our salvation. Salvation is in faith alone because it's by faith that we cry out and believe and receive the benefits of salvation. It's in Christ alone because we are made alive in Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ, and we will be received by Christ's body and soul one day at the resurrection of the dead and the glorification of the body. We will not boast in anything except God, and so it be solely Deo Gloria, who has given us all things for our salvation, as it says in Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. A million, billion years from now, my friends, when we are in the glorious presence of God, we will still be amazed that we will be in his presence. And we will still know that it was completely by His grace, for His glory, that we are there. So where are you this morning? Have you allowed that little island of righteousness that you think percolates in your mind and in your soul to mislead you, and now you recognize that you cannot save yourself through your own efforts or your own works, but now that you see yourself as hopeless and helpless and cry out to the Lord and say, have mercy on me. Say, I'm a sinner who deserves judgment. But Christ died for sinners and I throw myself at his mercy at the foot of the cross. Perhaps you are in Christ but you've kind of taken for granted the depths to which he went to save you and redeem you and give you an eternal inheritance. And you're spirit, your mind to become a little dulled to his grace. I need a reminder from the Lord this morning and repent from that, that laziness, that spiritual lethargy. Say, Lord, I want the refreshment of the joy of the salvation you give me in Christ. Or maybe you've just forgotten about the fact that the new birth brings about the new life, and you've kind of stopped letting God work through you in the me good works of mercy and grace and helps to other people. And you say, Lord, I've I got to stop being lazy. i got to stop looking out for number one and put you as number one and just make my life available for however you want to use me. The good thing about the grace of God is that it continually comes after us. A prayer that I've prayed for many years in my own life to the Spirit of God is, do not stop pursuing me. Because I know there's more sins that I need to confess. I know there's more bad habits that have to be broken. I know there's more grace I need to understand. I know there's things that I myself need to grow in this grace that God has given me. And If that's our prayer, Holy Spirit, do not stop pursuing us so we will become more like Christ. Every day there will be things we need to repent of. But every day there will be more joys of things for which we can give thanks. As we experience his riches and his grace. So this morning... As we think of the five solas, but more importantly, as we think of the gospel, let's turn to the Lord and ask him to do what only he can do as we pray now. Father, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you for the beauty of Christ. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the joy we have of our salvation. But Father, we thank you for a grace that will not let us go and continues to pursue us so that we become more and more like Christ. And so this morning, Father, we repent of our sins, of our hardness of heart, of our silliness of mind, and we say, Lord, work in us. In any way you choose, that we become more like Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the gospel, and we pray that you would help us to live it out fully, faithfully, fruitfully, joyfully, because it's all about you, for you and your glory. And so we thank you, Father. And we say yes, solely. Deo Gloria, in Jesus' name, amen.